Hey sis! From coast to coast, we're bridging the gap between the cisgender and transgender community, creating meaningful dialogue and space to learn and grow. Join us as we connect with our community, break down tough conversations, and get comfortable being better humans. I mean, if you ask, like the trans composers that I know, if you ask them if their music is transgender because they are transgender, you're going to get the full gamut of responses. You're going to get, yes, of course, my music is perfectly and completely transgender, and you can't take that away from me. If you're performing my work, it's going to be trans music, and you have to cope with that disrupting your system. You're going to get other people who say, of course not. My music is not transgender. My music is just music. Have you ever looked behind the curtain and did a deep dive about who the composer or artist is? Do you ever consider what draws you to the music you love and how that is linked to your identity? What if you're a trans composer? How does that shape your music or does it? Today, we're joined by Hope Salmonson, a composer and student at Mount Allison University, who is the heart behind the research project, Transgendering the Musical Score, Exploring Transgender Identity Through Composition. Thank you for joining us today, Hope. Yeah, this is a little new to me, my first time on a podcast. So how, how, do, you, how do you two know each other again? Give me your, give me your background. I can, I can elaborate, I guess. Um, so Hope and I met... Oh my goodness, 2013, 2014, early, early like 2010s um, at a youth project uh, camp. I believe it was Camp Seahorse. And I think we also did go to Camp Coyote a couple years after that. But yeah, so we first met there and then we just kind of hit it off. And I believe we also have the same birthday, if I'm not mistaken. I love that. That's amazing. So maybe I'll kick things off with a bit about yourself. Where were you born and where do you call home? Yeah. Um... Well, my name is Hope Salmonson. Uh, I am from Halifax, I suppose you could say, uh, but I was really raised rural um, out on the eastern shore of Nova Scotia. Uh, and I, I now, for, for the time being, call Sackville, New Brunswick home uh, as I'm just finishing up my bachelor in music here at Mount Allison University. Uh, but I, I feel there's a there's a relationship between the eastern shore and a small town like Sackville where the rural environment really sort of has been my norm so my home so to speak has really been on a lot of digital spaces so geographically I'm in Sackville personally I'm in my chat rooms and my group chats um, just uh, for our listeners who might not know, so Sackville's right on the border, isn't it, of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and, um, and Mount A or Mount Allison University, where you're at right now. Actually, my, uh, one of my kiddos just got accepted into there in September, so they're heading that way, and we're, we're super excited about it. It's, uh, I think, currently the top undergraduate university in Canada, so it's a great place to be, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... I, I, I was listening to a stream recently where uh, the host was talking about university, not, not even as the school itself, but as the people you meet there. Um, I mean, that's especially the case in music or fine arts, creative writing, uh, what have you, where uh, my, my experience at this university 
has only been as good as the people that I've met here and the connections that I've made have really uh, been able to sustain me. And I feel like they'll be what propel me into the future. Oh, I That's love amazing. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell us, um, so you're just completing right now your undergraduate in, in music. And what sparked your interest in, in music composition? Well, music composition sort of came to me at a time when I needed something. Uh, as, as Isaac may know uh, from me being in high school, I was a tubist. Uh, that was my thing. I played the biggest brass instrument and I, and I could boast about that uh, in any fun fact session. Um, and I, I always knew that music was where I wanted to go, sort of following in the footsteps of my family who really had a rich musical connection with each other, playing in, you know, family bands kind of stuff. Um, when I went to university for music, I, I was dead set on performing. Uh, being a professional tubist. Um, And then when I stepped into the institution, really, of music, uh, no longer just playing in band for fun, but really needing to focus my life around music, I was, uh, I I was hit with the, the realities of what the industry and the institution, uh, and especially a conservatory environment entails. Um, So in in performance, firstly, I mean, the financial uh, side of it is classic. Tubas are big, and they are not cheap. Uh, And I I found out, you know, the tuba that I had, as much as I loved it, I needed two tubas, and my tuba fit neither category. So I was two, you know, $20,000 instruments behind. Uh, And I also saw a lot of energy in the performance realm that didn't really drive with me. And a big part of that was in composer representation, uh, where I, if I wanted to be playing in any orchestra, or if I even wanted to get into grad school, the audition list involved a lot of names whose philosophies or whose ideologies I blatantly disagree with. And the reality is uh, where there's one tuba in the entire orchestra, and sometimes there's only one orchestra in the entire province. Uh, Nova Scotia is lucky to have more than one. Uh, If you're not willing to play Wagner or Strauss or whoever, somebody else is waiting in line and the, the orchestra will happily take that person. So I was sort of stuck halfway through my degree realizing that the path I was following wasn't leading somewhere I wanted it to go. And composition came to me in a way that I wasn't seeing the music that I wanted to play. I wasn't seeing, firstly, music by a trans woman. uh, And I wasn't seeing music that reflected my personal and musical interests. So I just kind of started pen to paper, in you know the composition courses i started making small things uh i very much had a go get them attitude and my professor dr morse had to sort of you know reel me in make sure that i learn what i'm doing before i run with it uh but i found in composition a way to express myself as my whole self uh not having to 
wear dark clothing to hide the trans body behind the instrument. Uh, so it's really been a matter of personal expression, ideological uh, satisfaction, and simply the music I wanted to hear. Can I ask just when you said like with regards to like the ideological um, idea that if you're not willing to play something like like Wagner, um, that there's so like so were you speaking to yourself specifically like around that and were those ideologies formed um as part of the intersections of being transgender or is that just more of a general um ideology that's not related to your identity i think it's more of a general thing uh surprise surprise you don't hear much about trans identity when talking about the greats of classical music if you will um I mean, Wagner uh, is known for his his anti-Semitism. Uh, his his works were uh, held in high regard by the Third Reich, um, and there's there's a lot of composers through the, the years and the centuries who had the same the same issues and the same questions coming up. You know, classical era composers in you know the late 1700s how many of them were related to slave orchestras in the transatlantic slave trade. Hector Berlioz in the 1800s, he, his main piece that he's known for is, was a result of him stalking a woman that he saw play performing Shakespeare. So it, it comes in a lot of different uh, composers through the eras. It's sort of like a don't meet your heroes kind of thing. Mm. Uh, where that Berlioz piece was actually my favorite orchestral piece going into university and I was so excited to play it and I researched it and I was like wait a minute this is and the the illusion was broken uh, so mm. there isn't really anything specific to trans people there I mean sure there are probably people even who compose now who don't have any respect for trans folks uh, but I mean, as far as I know, the trans identity is something that's always been uh, parallel and separate from the classical music community. Well, and I, I think personally, especially when thinking about classical music, it's not, and I apologize, I'm very terrible with like music terms, um, but it's not kind of like the standard pop music that we hear nowadays where a lot of politics and emotion and ideological opinions come out very overtly with classical music it's very covert so you really have to kind of like dive in and do the analysis to be like okay like what was the passion behind this because there's usually not a whole lot of vocals there's usually not a whole lot of you know those sorts of things to make it very clear what people are people are talking about so i think i think that's really interesting because when we hear classical music we don't we usually just hear it we don't think about it um so it's nice to have that perspective on that and I think it's really important because especially someone like yourself, um, people who are composing and coming from, whether it be marginalization, there's so much more passion and emotion that is embedded in that. And we need to start looking at that. It's sorry. I just, it's so fascinating. Like Isaac I, and, and Hope, I, like, because it's so true, like I wouldn't necessarily, well, I have listened to the music and it makes me feel a certain way. I maybe haven't been guilty of not really looking behind the history, behind 
behind the title and behind the actual, the history of, of the person. And that's something I will definitely do now. This is like, has kind of like flipped this little, this light bulb, but it begs to say like, as say a young gay person or a, a young child that's Jewish, that maybe is listening to a song and it makes them feel so great and helps them through a hard time. And ironically, they might not even realize the connections to the person who wrote that song being anti-Semitic, as you said, or, or homophobic in a way, or, you know, connected to the slave trade. And yeah, I mean, it, the, it's a whole conversation in itself, which makes your research project even more, I think, in, exciting. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's always that question of how do we relate the composer and the music or the singer and the music, the painter and the art? Um, and uh, in a lot of points throughout history, there's been a desire to really keep the composer separate. I mean, there's so many pieces that are anonymous, firstly, where it's just been lost to history and nobody knows who wrote it. And then you find people who composed in a position at a church or in a position within the court of some rich or noble person uh, who their identity wasn't really at question. It was just a matter of write the music, that's your job. Um, more and more through the centuries, we've seen a shift towards a need for identity and a need for identity in music because, you know, as Isaac put, um, much of pop music has lyrics and lyrics being language that we can ideally understand it's so much easier and so much more accessible to get to the idea behind what that person's saying uh at, and sort of as, as you mentioned cynthia the need to look behind the curtain isn't really as necessary when the points spoken are so overt uh which puts me in a weird spot as a composer where I need to be thinking about how my piece is going to be interpreted and how I myself interpret my piece without words. Of course, sometimes I write art song, but uh, when I write for a singer and piano, I almost never write the poetry myself. It's, it's always someone else's words that I'm using. All of a sudden, somebody's listening to my art song and they're interpreting not just me and my intended meaning, but they're also interpreting the poet behind that. They're interpreting the singer who is interpreting me. It becomes this sort of almost a game of telephone where these different people actively or passively come together. I mean, most of the poets I've set to music have been dead. I mean, it's public domain. But we come together, uh, whether actively or not, and mutually and collaboratively construct meaning. We together create the idea that will then be received individually and subjectively by every person performing it and listening to it. So trying to figure out where I fit in all that and where my transness and my queerness and my disability fit into all that, it's really, a, it's, it's quite a balancing act and there's a lot to keep in mind. Absolutely, yeah. And I think this is a good segue into, into my next question. So uh, tell us a bit about your research project and kind of the, 
I want to say like the, not necessarily inspiration, but uh, what kind of sparked you to put research behind the work and your kind of everyday identity? I think, again, it was a matter of not seeing what I wanted to see in the industry, not seeing myself represented. Um, I, it's, it started out with a question uh, that I would often receive. I, I'd, be perf I'd perform a piece of music or uh, more aptly, I'd, someone else would perform a piece that I wrote and I would be approached sort of with an assumption uh, that the music that I wrote was transgender that it was transgender music because I wrote it. It's if a black person writes something, it's black music, so on and so forth. Uh, and and that, that assumption bears a lot of weight and comes with a lot of additional questions where what is transgender music? I mean, if you ask like the trans composers that I know, if you ask them if their music is transgender because they are transgender, you're going to get the full gamut of responses. You're going to get yes, of course, my music is perfectly and completely transgender, and you can't take that away from me. If you're performing my work, it's going to be trans music, and you have to cope with that disrupting your system. You're going to get other people who say, of course not. My music is not transgender. My music is just music. For you to put that label on me is tokenizing, objectifying, transphobic. Mm. I don't, after all this, I still don't fully know where I fall uh, in terms of responding to that question, but it did lead me to start with the question, what is transgender music, if anything? And what is, what do I do that makes my music transgender that a cis composer doesn't or couldn't do? Uh, that ev eventually that question of what is transgender music, it, it became a little bit useless to me because what I was just saying, where the answer is so subjective, you will never get this. <laughs> you might get a similar answer once or twice, but you will never get a unified mm -hmm. consensus from the trans community. So it's that sort of led me in the direction of if trans music, so to speak, is assumed either constructed by the trans composer or interpreted by the cis listeners who come and comment on my work, then really what's happening here is meaning is being constructed. So mm. all of a sudden I looked at constructed meaning and sort of the idea that no music has one specific meaning as a lens through which we could, as trans people, see ourselves in music. I mean, uh, you take examples like uh, Mahler's Resurrection Symphony. Uh, there's, um, there's a choral part where the German text is translated roughly to, I, I will die that I may find life. And, you know, there's a transness to that. And I, I was listening to a podcast where Eric Peregrine, a trans conductor uh, and chorister, really related to that, despite it being an old white man who died, you know, forever ago, despite that still being able to find their own queerness and their own transness within that idea. So 
it wasn't really a matter of it wasn't really a matter of making my music trans or analyzing trans music, but rather analyzing how all of us might construct meaning in the works that we compose, perform, or listen to, and how that can be a gateway to a more personal connection to music, even when the identity labels of the people associated with that piece might not match up with ours. Um, that is, it's really fascinating and something jumped out at me at the beginning of what you were talking about there, because it's true, like the interpretation is so subjective on how we experience music to label something as transgender music at the beginning, because the composer, um, the writer is transgender. It can be so limiting, um, in that it puts, it puts one piece of the person first an overshadowing of of the entire body of work in it made me think about that um the concept of transgender broken arm syndrome in hospitals where sometimes a trans person will go to seek help for a broken arm but they put the transgender piece first and it's like oh did this happen because you're trans and maybe you're experiencing a, some mental health stress and it's related to that and they get so bogged down in one piece of the person that they miss the whole the big picture um and i think you're would i be correct in saying that you're speaking sort of a lot sort of to that and that like don't put that as one piece but it is a part of it but it's not all of it Yes and no, I think. Okay. Um, there, there are a lot of trans people, as I said, who really will uh, put their trans identity at the foreground and their work is trans. Um, and even non-trans composers who write specific pieces, I mean, what comes to mind is uh, the composer Omar Thomas, who uh, wrote Mother of a Revolution uh, for a concert band. And it's the, the piece itself is entirely dedicated to Marsha P. Johnson. Um, that piece cannot exist without the, the idea of transness. That piece cannot be what it is without thinking about Marsha. Um, and many of the people who come to me about my compositions uh, have that exact transgender broken arm idea where it's you know, a diagnosis, really, before they've spoken to me, they diagnose that my music is transgender because I'm transgender. Um, personally, I, I don't foreground that identity. I, I don't hide it. But, you know, in relationship with my own body and with my own mind and my own spirit, I've chosen not to, you know, hold up a sign. I, I exist in my space, and if people, you know, can't jive with that, then they're probably not in my space, or they won't be for long. So for me personally, trans, the trans part of me exists and is in conversation with the rest of me, and all of that combined is in conversation with my music. Yeah, I think, I think that's so true for so many trans people and you know I personally myself I struggle a lot with this when having discussions especially especially ones that aren't focused on identity or like marginalization or community I struggle a lot because when I enter a space I you want to be visible and you want to showcase that trans part of yourself but you you don't necessarily want it to be at the 
foreground of it in my in my opinion for myself um so it, it's it's a difficult conversation with yourself especially when it comes to to the art because everything is so interpreted and everyone can interpret things differently so you can take you can take something super out of context um so i think that's it, it's really interesting to hear different perspectives on that because a lot of folks have that assumption that trans people always want that visibility and that's absolutely true we want visibility but it doesn't need to come at a cost where it kind of paints over all the hard work that we've done and all of the beauty outside from something being trans and the, the reality there is that visibility is dangerous it's, yeah, it's a double-edged sword every time we think about it because okay. you know every time somebody knows that i'm trans that puts the ball in their court as to whether they're going to choose violence today um i mean if somebody didn't know that i was trans and heard a piece of music that i happened to write maybe the, maybe they'll associate it with transness maybe they won't and i think the most the, the most pertinent example of that would be the piece that i wrote that accompanied that research project uh et tv miserere um et tv miserere is in latin uh, i don't know if either of you are fluent um oh. <laughs> i uh, i only know enough latin to sing in choirs um and that's sort of where the title came from is that uh so many trans people, for instance, will hear et tibi miserere and they'll be like, okay, that's Latin. So this is from the Catholic Church. This piece probably comes from an, an ideology that doesn't respect me or support me. And, and that's totally valid. Like how many of us, you know, in the trans community think of, you know, the institutions that have historically and repetitively harmed us and we just shy away. Um, can you translate what it means in English? ATV Miserere? Yeah. Um, so, ATV Miserere is the third of three Latin lines that I use in the piece. And it starts with Miserere nobis and Miserere mei. Um, those meaning have mercy on us and have mercy on me, respectively. Mm -hmm. So, when we hear those, we associate those with uh, forgiveness from sin. Uh, especially in a way that is weaponized against the trans life, uh, where merely existing is an act of sin that I need to apologize for and seek mercy for. Um, I, et tibi miserere, though, means and have mercy on yourself. Um, it's something you're not going to find in any uh liturgical text uh whatsoever and it led to some arguments with the kind of people who are not in my space um uh around you know how can you ask god to have mercy on himself but even in that question we we get a lot of assumptions who am i praying to firstly uh i i took uh, an approach in that was panentheistic, and I learned that word over the course of the summer, which means sort of an idea that everything and everyone is contained within God, uh, 
and even even that's a little scary Isaac's here like who did I take on my podcast um but uh it's it's an idea separate from you know the individual separate man in the sky um that some people associate with a, a Christian god and rather it looks at everything is a part of God therefore everything is sacred the trees the sky the people the interactions for me that means community my community is part of god my community therefore is sacred if I, therefore i'm using a lot of therefores uh if i pray to god i'm praying to my loved ones uh and if i ask them to have mercy on me to take care of me uh, i i'd hope that i would ask my friends and my loved ones to take care of themselves too. Hence, et tibi miserere. Uh, it, it treats, it, it, it has the same sacred approach that many uh, religious uh, works of music have, but rather than it being a, a singular Christian God, what is sacred is the love uh, that is there for my community. It, it really is, it's an ode to trans and queer love for me uh someone might not hear that if they just hear the text um i mean it's not just latin in there there's english text by some public domain poets and myself uh but if somebody hears the latin they may not know that but when you look into that and sort of again look behind that curtain this piece is for me explicitly and necessarily queer and trans in its love for the people that made it. I love that. And I think, I mean, for me, I, I'm a cisgender, um, I'm a cisgender person, but I'm the parent of a trans child. And um, we advocate, we've been advocating from them from the very beginning, because they were quite, they were too young to advocate for themselves. And, um, from from myself from a theological point of view like we were they were they were born in Ireland and their dad is you know raised very Irish Catholic eight brothers and sisters and um you know altar boys in the church um him and his best friend who actually the priest always assumed that they were gay and um growing up in that you know when we went through this transition and and everything just with the Catholic Church you know the law came into question around that. And um, my, my son was actually um, like did their first communion before they had transitioned. And, but for us, the idea of spirituality, as you're talking about there, it has always been a sense of love and um, connection, I think, and that sense of belonging. And they have never felt married to one particular home or institution. For us, it's just all around us and wherever. We stopped going to church, you know, formally years ago, but would consider ourselves still very spiritual. So, you know, God isn't, you know, married to any particular institution. And um, so I what you said is just so, it is really, really beautiful. Um, because I think, especially for my son, you know, that having that element of spirituality is so important because it is connection, it's love and that feeling sense of belonging in the world and knowing that you are, you do belong and that, you know, you are needed and that you are valid, but it doesn't have to come from any sphere of closed-minded religion. Absolutely. And the idea 
there's a split in ideas here where your child isn't important because they're loved by a separate God, that because whatever they've done has been accepted. They're, they're important because in this ideology, they're important because they are sacred. Exactly who they are is as important to me as any God and exactly what they do and what they say and what they feel is as important as what any God might do, say, or feel. And that's a really hard to grapple with because we're, we're often taught to minimize ourselves uh, in the face of capitalism, in the face of uh, various religions. But this approach for me maximizes people and allows us to feel the importance that we all have to each other and to ourselves. Yeah. And it comes from a very vulnerable place in people. Spirituality is very personal, very vulnerable. And would you say in your experience as a uh, composer, more specifically within like classical music, this is kind of the biggest challenge is kind of the relationship classical music has with religion in terms of being a trans composer, or would you maybe assign that to something else? Um, I don't think, I, I often think about specifically the relationship between classical music and religion, because, you know, through history for every sacred piece, there's always been a secular piece. There's always been some of that space that exists within Christian environments, and there's some of that space that exists for the people. Much of, a, a lot of early music might have drawn on folk tunes or uh, music that the people in the streets might be whistling. Um, for me, the bigger challenge, and I think some of this goes back to where trans identity has always been sort of parallel to, but not touching classical music. It's been the connection externally between classical music and the elite. Um, there's always been an idea uh, that really permeates marginalized communities now uh, and has for a long time that classical music isn't for us. Um, and that came in a lot of spaces where, uh, you know, Amy Beach was trying to compose at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. And we had people, uh, we had Dvorak coming along and saying, you know, it's not bad for a woman, uh, but, you know, uh, we've had Black composers composing, you know, for at least as long uh, as white composers. And even thinking about what composition is, there's been music and there's been song made by Indigenous communities for centuries, if not millennia. Tra and trans people have always existed somewhere in that space, uh, not to mention any number of worldwide interpretations of self and gender that don't fall under our colonial idea of transness. We've always been there, but we've been convinced and we've been taught, it's been drilled into our heads that these spaces aren't for us. So there's an idea that anytime a composer enters that space from the environment of a marginalized community, either they're being disruptive deliberately to sort of loudly and boldly 
express their self within music and you know that's good good on them then there's the other half that's uh the idea sort of comes along that this woman this you know white cisgender you know from a wealthy family woman is coming in and sort of minimalizing uh her gender and just trying to exist within the same space and sort of putting herself to the side so that her music can shine. Uh, that's a question that comes up where does my music fit to the standard that's been set and what's the standard if not uh, white cis heteropatriarchy. Uh, sometimes my music does fit, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but I think my real grappling with that was earlier in my compositional experience. I've only been composing for, you know, a few years, but early on, I had that real worry about where I fit, if anywhere, into the space. But I think more recently, it's been a matter of realizing that there are going to be people who want to listen to your music, no matter who you are, no matter what you write there are going to be people who want to listen because there are going to be people who will love you. Um, and I've found, I've since found communities of women composers, communities of disabled composers, communities of queer and trans composers. And I've found the environment in which I feel welcome. And this environment it's still, we still create, you know, excellent music, I, I like to think, but the focus is no longer exactly on, you know, the deep harmonic texture and our use of these rhythmic and compositional devices uh, and the deep theory of music. Um, it's, for a lot of people, myself included, it's about meaning and it's about where the music comes from and what the music does to glorify the self that we want to see. So it's sort of like an anti-elitism and it's a focus on my music fits the standard because it's my standard for the music to fit. Mm. There's so much power to that. Um, so I'm just curious, do you have any goals, long-term, short-term goals or uh, where might we find you in five to 10 years? And it's a big question. <laughs> it's like asking oh a, a high schooler what they want to do when they grow up and no one ever knows. But for the most part, I really hope that you'll find me doing pretty much the same thing that I'm doing now. Uh, really, when I came into university, there was a need for me to learn and learn to get better, get better to be successful, be successful to make a life. But as I approach the end of my undergraduate, what's been, you know, five years now, uh, it's really been the, the, the beginning of that still rings true. I learn to get better, but not better by, again, any standard. Uh, rather, I learn so that I can navigate this world with some sense of understanding of myself and the world around me. Uh, I compose to express that understanding of myself and what I see. And that music gets performed by people who interpret that and add their own meaning. That's listened to by people who come to the concert with their own ideas around what the music will be. And so everything I do as a composer 
is part of a team, <laughs> whether all the team is uh, aware that they're part of the team is another story. But what I do is only one component of the experience of music. So I really hope that as I continue and as I develop more connections with people and music, that my composition continues to exist in communication and dialogue with the people who want to experience it. Hope, where can our listeners find your music now? Where can they go to if they want to, um, to sample some of your music and experience it? Um, yeah, well, uh, the easy one is uh, my website, uh, hopeariamusic.com, aria being A-R-I-A, perks of being trans is you get to choose your middle name, and mine just so happened to relate to music. I didn't actually know it was a musical term at the time, but uh, yeah, hopeariamusic.com, that's also the name of my Facebook page, my, uh, my Instagram uh, if you look up Hope Salmonson, uh, S-A-L-M-O-N-S-O-N on YouTube, you'll find something. There aren't a lot of Salmonsons. Uh, <laughs> so you'll be able to find me wherever you look. Links in the show notes and as well to make it as easy as possible for people to connect. Yeah. And I can attest Hope's work is, uh, is definitely inspirational. So highly, highly recommend. Shucks. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to it from time to time, you know. The that is a huge honor, that I truly. Experienced, I loved it really. Yeah. Yeah. It's as I as I kind of said in the beginning, it's really interesting to kind of do these deep dives. And especially when it comes to people who compose their own music. Um, because you really get the I'll say the insider scoop <laughs> on uh, what kind of motivates you to do what you do. And um, the beauty of music and art in general is that it has everlasting life. So, you know, this will, this will live on farther than, uh, than all of us. Um, and that's, I think that's really exciting. That's the dream. And yeah. the, the huge compliment here um, is that you both have taken such a liking to the music and that's, if I may, you know, make a brash assumption, it, it seems that neither of you are like deeply into <laughs> what we call classical music. Um, and that what that means to me is sort of the philosophy that's been guiding my music since I started composing, which is, uh, you know, I didn't grow up with your Bach or your Mozart, your Brahms, whoever. I, I grew up with the Dixie Chicks on my mom's radio. Um, and sort of whatever songs that my mom used to rollerblade to uh, at the rink. Uh, so my guiding philosophy was, can my mom whistle along to this? Can my mom be tapping her foot in the car on the way home? Uh, and, you know, now that I've really come to understand my place and my position of transness uh, within the compositional uh, process, I similarly hope that the trans and queer people who have forever been told that classical music is not for them can listen to my music. And even if they don't get into it, if they can listen to my music and enjoy part of it for, you know, five minutes, that's far more important than any accolade I'll ever receive. 
Well, we really appreciate you coming on the show and, yes. and thank you so much for your time and talking to us. And I really, you'll be hearing from me because I'm going to be exploring your music more. And yeah, so thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Hope. Thank you for having me. That's all the time we have today, folks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hey Sis. The conversation doesn't have to stop here, though. If you would like to get in touch with us to ask us a question or share your story on a future episode, you can email us at connect at simplygoodform.com or visit us on our website at www.hasis.com. 